Now, what would be the odds that that was happening again, that that wasn't a new report? Was that a new report or an old report? That's what I'm asking. Is it a new report or an old report? Is that a new report? Well, we don't know. When a seasoned sports fan teams up with a millennial, opinions may vary, but the debates assuredly won't disappoint. Check your sources. It's New Report, Old Report. Here's your hosts, John Lund and Al Renato. Well, Al, another exciting week in athletics championship weekend is here in college football and we're closer and closer to the final college football rankings the one that actually matters major league baseball has taken some time off a little lockout happening hopefully fingers crossed they'll be able to resolve it before spring training but if you're putting your faith in major league baseball we know how that goes nobody circles the wagons quite like the National Football League. And LeBron James is back from a little break for some health protocols for the Los Angeles Lakers. But we start with what has rocked the college football world, to say the least, this past week. And it's not the teams playing in the championship games vying to get into the college football playoff. It's not... Uh, an unfortunate passing away or a great milestone to talk about. It's two coaches at two of the more prestigious universities in the sport, basically deciding that they've had enough with their teams a week before the season comes to a close before we've decided who's going to make the college football playoff. And for one of those teams that was still up in the air, basically leaving in the middle of the night in both circumstances, a la John Adams appointing those judges at midnight and getting the hell out of the white house. See ya. You could deal with the shrapnel. Once I'm gone, there's greener pastures ahead. Lincoln Riley leaves Oklahoma seemingly hours after losing bedlam at Oklahoma state. And Brian Kelly leaves Notre Dame for LSU Not after a game, not after the team was basically out of the running to make the final four, just decides this is not for me anymore. I'm out leaving the team in the lurch without them knowing what their postseason future holds. Now I'm the new report of the show. Obviously you've been watching college football a lot longer than me. We've seen coaches come and go. We've seen them up and leave their programs like a husband that says he's going to the gas station and leaves his wife and kids. This is not the first time that this happened, but it's the first time I can remember where it's two prestigious coaches at two prestigious universities. These are places where you go to retire. You don't leave these places. You build up the programs and those become your legacies And not one, but two coaches decided to leave that all behind. Now, granted, they're going to two other places that also are as prestigious, if not more, one could argue. But the way in which it was done for both coaches, seemingly just ghosting their assistants, ghosting their players, having to send them text messages because the news got broke to the public and they just wanted to save face by, oh, yeah, we're leaving come meet us here and we'll have a little goodbye meeting. I'm still floored by both decisions from both head coaches, not because of them leaving, go for the money, go for your career, do what you want to do. But the way in which both of them left, it rocked college football. And it's an incredible moment in the sport for both these guys leaving behind Oklahoma and Notre Dame for potentially greener pastures And in the way in which they did it, it's going to be talked about for years and years and years to come when their names get brought up. Gauntless and unconscionable. No other way, no, no other way, no other way to describe it. And ironically, it ruined one of 
the best Saturdays in recent college football memory. The Saturday after Thanksgiving has always been at high noon the game, Ohio State, Michigan. And all we said in preparation of that game, can we at least for once see a game? With the exception of a couple of years ago when Michigan got screwed by the officials, this has been a route. It has been two great programs playing like one great program and another team that didn't belong in the same field. How many times have we seen Michigan look like they were playing with six guys versus Ohio State 16? How many times have we seen an Ohio State receiver catch the ball in the middle of the field and not see a Michigan guy for five minutes? I thought the Ohio State guy got to the end zone and was celebrating. This was a joy. This was not because you, know, you don't like a whole, it was beautiful football. It was old report Michigan football. It was what we hoped from Jim Harbaugh when he went to Michigan against a very good Ohio State team. This was thought by, thought by many of the best team in the country. Heisman candidate quarterback, weapons all over the field, brilliant receivers, wonderful running back. The Michigan defense basically kept the ball in front of them. They never got beat to the end zone. They made Ohio State go the length of the field, hunt and pack, slow but sure, no mammoth plays, and to do so, some incredible I, I mean, remarkable catches by Ohio State receivers that you literally had to see to believe, including the first touchdown, third longs, fourth down conversions, just to stay in the game with a Michigan offense that played like men, grown men, old school, ram it down your throat, an offensive line that was brilliant, a wonderfully called game by Harbaugh, the offensive coordinator, except for one call, the idiotic throw, up 7 nothing. that I thought, oh, here we go again. After the short field, and a chance to go up to 14 nothing. after he tries to force the ball in the middle who gets picked off. And I was like, yeah, 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 this is a similar story. Similar story. If not for that, it wouldn't even have been close. Michigan was in charge the entire game. They played like the big kid, the big brother, the tough guy on the block, and they did it the old-fashioned way. They put their heads down, they went straight ahead, and they literally blew Ohio State off the ball. Straight back, run it, run it, run it, run it, run it again. Play fake, little reverse, play action, some deep stuff. Just a thing of beauty. With 107,000 in the big house, the snow falling, it was literally what you wish for college football. It was the fourth quarter we have been begging for with the game of the hat. Michigan control, but what have we, we said time and time and time again? I don't think they can say it. It'd be great if it was close. Let's keep our fingers crossed that the game is a decent game. Well, it was a great game. It was a great spectacle for college football. It was awesome for Jim Harbaugh to finally get the monkey off his back. And Michigan, on Saturday, played like the best football team in all of college football. And they did it the old-fashioned way. And now they jumped to number two. If they beat Iowa, they're in. And I'd like nothing better. Someone down the line. Come Final Four. When all the dust settles to see Michigan and Georgia go at each other with 
a great defense, a good defense, a good offense, and a tremendous running, versatile offense. I think it would be a great change from what we're used to seeing, and I think it would be a tremendous, tremendous football game. Well, that just goes to show you how amazing this news of these coaches had to be because of how crazy last weekend in college football was. Jim Harbaugh finally did it. Followed by Auburn and Alabama in a game that was done over. Alabama dead, buried, shut out. And, of course, they pull a rabbit out of the hat. Tie it late with a beautiful throw and catch by maybe a Heisman winner. Who knows? Who's going to win the Heisman? Nobody. I don't know. And then this maybe the worst rule in all of sports, college football overtime. Why don't we just flip a coin and whoever wins the toss wins the game? Am I the only person on the planet left who's okay with ties? Old report. Ties are fine. Until you get to the postseason, tie is fine. It throws a monkey wrench into everything. Just lose a tie. We're going to resort to two-point conversions after two. Two-point conversions. What could possibly be dumber and more of a bastardization of the sport? Alabama survives. In the uh, triple overtime. In the Iron Bowl. And then we go to Bethel. Oklahoma. Oklahoma State. Winner with an outside chance for the Final Four. Okie stayed up early. Bunch of mistakes. Oklahoma comes back. Takes the lead. Makes mistakes. Next thing you know, a couple awful calls. Go in Oklahoma State's favor. They win Bedlam. Oklahoma is out of the mix. Oklahoma State's alive. And then all hell breaks loose. All hell breaks loose. Lincoln Riley says in the post game, I am absolutely positively not going to be the next coach at LSU. He told the truth. He just got his letters mixed up. He instead becomes the next coach at USC. Recruits pull out, decommit. Current guys at Oklahoma jump at the transfer portal. And all of a sudden, he's got six new homes, a jet, and a new job in one of the great programs in the history of college football, where he can go with his offense, with his quarterback whisperer, and take control of a conference that is in desperate need of a team ready to take a stranglehold at the top and be a competitor in the Final Four. Because as much as we root for Oregon, as much as we like to think Oregon is there, they go out and they lay an egg in a big spot with an embarrassing, a pathetic performance at Utah in the game of their year to stay in the mix and they get blown out of the building. Literally never a contest. Over at halftime. Now Lincoln Riley goes to USC with the treasure trove of talent, quarterback talent especially, in the sunny skies of California. They will be in the mix for the Final Four faster than you can say Pete Carroll, Reggie Bush, and Matt Leiner. You watch. And then if that's not enough, the most gutless, spineless, unprofessional, disloyal move in the history of college coaching. Many moons ago, when the new report was not with us yet, Michigan basketball coach Bill Frieder at the beginning of the NCAA tournament told Bo Schembechler, I'm taking the Arizona State job. 
I'll still coach the team if you like. And Bo Schembechler said, oh, no, you don't. Michigan will be coached by a Michigan man. You want the Arizona State job? Don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out. Steve Fisher takes over the head coaching job from his assistant's chair. And the next thing you know, Michigan goes on a magical run. Then in 1999, NCAA Final Four, and beats Seton Hall to the national title. Here we have this coach at Notre Dame, whose team goes out and pummels Stanford, doesn't have a conference championship to play in, and one of the great jobs at one of the great traditional programs, maybe the greatest, in their city of college football, who's been in the Final Four and embarrassed every time they get there. After his team does what they have to do to stay in the mix, and is really only, in my mind, a solid Georgia victory over Alabama in the SEC title game away from jumping into the Final Four, decides, I'm off to LSU. And tells his players in anywhere from a two to 11 minute meeting via text, Zoom, whatever. What could be more gutless? What could be more spineless? What could be more unprofessional? You want to go and head for higher ground where there's more money? This is America. Absolutely, you're right. But how dare you? You go into rooms across the country and tell players and their parents, this is Notre Dame. This is tradition. This is loyalty. This is team. Come here. You'll get a great education. You will understand the tradition, the loyalty, the passion, the pageantry of Touchstone Jesus and Notre Dame. You took all that time to recruit them. You couldn't take an hour to meet with your entire team, to look them in the eye, shake their hands, and give them a hug and thank them. 7 a.m., I'm leaving. Thanks. Goodbye. When your team is still in the hunt, to play for a national title, which you have never won, and open the door for a committee to say, just like a player who is not with the team because of injury, we can take into consideration that the team does not have their head coach, which is asinine and has nothing to do with the caliber of the team, has nothing to do with the players. You allow the committee, and I couldn't care less about it today, I care about the sport. I care about integrity. I care about loyalty to your players. And being fair and honest and rewarding them for what they've done for you. Because you are there because of them. You may be a terrific coach, but if your players don't perform, you ain't going nowhere. And to do that to those players, where not only do you literally head out the back door before you even know if you're playing for a national title, but put that potential possibility at risk by giving the opportunity to the committee to say, well, you know what? Okay, Alabama lost, but Oklahoma State batted out, and they got some quality wins, and Notre Dame's coach isn't there. So we're jumping them over Notre Dame, even though we think they might be better. And I couldn't care less about Notre Dame. I never root for Notre Dame. I despise Notre Dame. I felt bad for Notre Dame once. Thanksgiving weekend, 1985, when Jimmy Johnson and his crew of Miami thugs embarrassed Jerry Faust 
58 to 7, a beleaguered coach in over his head who had only coached in high school, a legendary high school coach at Moeller High School in Cincinnati. In his last game, after a mediocre at best few years at Notre Dame, Jimmy Johnson not only beats Notre Dame up, he drags them around the building and embarrasses Jerry Faust on national TV, never calling off the dogs, 58 to 7. From that moment on, I despised Jimmy Johnson, who was a classless bum, a great coach, but a classless, cheap shot coach. Brilliant coach, brilliant recruiter, brilliant team, brilliant team builder. But I've never seen anything more disgraceful than what he did that day to a coach who literally was down, out, beleaguered, beat. To embarrass him like that was the most unprofessional thing I've ever seen at the highest level of the sport. From that moment on, I despised Miami. And that's the only time I felt bad for Notre Dame. I feel awful for these players. And I've always rooted for LSU. Since I was a kid, Saturday nights on the volume, nothing more exciting. That building on fire, those uniforms, Burt Jones, Andy Hamilton, Tommy Casanova. And now I will never, ever root for LSU as long as this bum, this gutless bum is their coach. I won't even say, say his name. I refuse to say his name. And if I was recruiting against LSU, I would go into kids' living rooms and I'd say, you want to go to LSU? I guarantee you this. I'm not walking out anywhere you got to hunt for a national championship. You want to trust him? Be my guest. Go ahead. I'm going to come and kick your ass. I'm going to, because I'm going to go and kick his ass. You want to go there? You trust him? Maybe the new report kids have changed. Maybe they don't care. Maybe loyalty doesn't matter. Maybe honesty doesn't matter. Maybe integrity doesn't matter. The new coach at LSU can go take a fly and screw to the moon. I hope they go three and eight, three and nine every year. I'm excited to yell about Brian Kelly, but let me say a couple of quick things on Lincoln Riley, because now working for Sirius XM Big 12 radio, we obviously had to be covering this and talk to guys in the know about what went down and how everything happened and what the end result would be. You can understand Lincoln Riley wanting to do this for a couple of different reasons. I mean, for one, his team after losing was pretty much out of the college football playoff. I shouldn't even say pretty much. They were out. So the season in that aspect for what's to come is you're just going to get a bowl game somewhere. So if you wanted another coaching job, you're not leaving a team like Brian Kelly is for Notre Dame. He's a younger guy. We know about USC at its peak, what it can be as far as the top echelon of college football, we've seen it with Pete Carroll and the sky's the limit. If you can get the team there, he's proven to be a winner. He can get people to come to his team. And we've seen it already with recruits just up and leaving, getting the hell out of Dodge from Oklahoma to go join him in USC. But again, it was just the way he went about it. These both of these jobs have been open for weeks. It's not like they just opened up on Saturday and it was a first-come, first-served type of deal. I mean, they're two of the best coaches in college football. If either one of them had said to the school, listen, hold on a second, let me finish up this season, let me get my ducks in a row, and I'm yours, who else are they going to go after aside from them? Somebody else out there. You wait. And I understand early signing day and recruiting and all that nonsense. In a sense, it is all nonsense. Because if you're Lincoln Riley or Brian Kelly, you can still go get those dudes. You can still have one of your guys go tell them, hey, something's coming. Just hold on a couple more weeks. 
all of this stuff wasn't going to self-destruct if they didn't make their decisions early Sunday morning. So for Lincoln Riley, who claimed that he had no contact with USC throughout the season, which is bullshit. It's just as much bullshit as him saying he's not going to LSU. That's him saying in lawyer speak, I haven't had any contact with USC, meaning my agent's been doing all the talking. I haven't literally talked to them, (laughs) but that's not to say that I don't know people that have, but he answers all the questions perfectly for the lawyer world in the courtroom. So you shouldn't be proud of Lincoln Riley for how he's handled these random questions and tried to keep his story straight because he can't figure out if it was late Saturday night when he talked to them first, early Sunday morning, when he went to sleep, when he actually met with them. But you close your eyes and open them, and he's on a plane out to L.A. getting ready to land to be USC's new head coach. When did his players find out? When they found out on social media that this story had broke and Lincoln Riley was leaving and jumping ship. When did the assistants come out and find out when it broke on social media and they found out he was jumping ship. Then he sent them a message. Hey, let's have a team meeting. I got to talk to you guys about this. Stood up in front of them for a couple minutes. No questions. Got out of Dodge again, taking the job. There's a ton of pros to becoming USC's new head football coach. You could argue that what you've built in Oklahoma is something you'd want to stay at, but being where he is in life at 38, I get it. But how he went about it was bullshit. You're leaving your players, you're leaving your coaches, you're leaving families in the dust. And after everything that these teams had to go through last season with COVID, not knowing whether they were going to play games or not, being away from their families, isolating the works... This is how you thank them the next year when things get back to semi-normal. There's number one. Shortly thereafter, this Brian Kelly stuff happens, and it somehow gets even worse than what Lincoln Riley did. Because, again, this breaks, and Brian Kelly's nowhere to be found. You know where he is? Sitting down with a recruit over in California. God knows what school he was talking to him about. But then news breaks. He's becoming the new coach at LSU. He's not talking to his players. He didn't talk to his coaches. Nobody knows where he is. What's going on with Brian Kelly? Then late in the night, he sends out a group text message to the team, basically saying, yeah, the rumors are true. I'm leaving. My love for you is endless. That was a great line that he had in there. Let's have a meeting tomorrow at seven in the morning. Hell, who the fuck is waking up at 7 in the morning to go get broken up with in college? The only time you're getting broken up with at 7 in the morning in college is if you're still up from the night before. You don't purposely go get breaking up with. They got to set their alarm for 6, shower up, and know that it's basically like you're going to the gallows. What good is going to come from that meeting? He should have just left it at the text message. Maybe you think he's going to say something worthwhile and it won't be the worst of feelings when we leave and we weren't burning bridges along the way. Well, he gets up there and the reports come out that he was in and out in 11 minutes. And we thought originally he had been speaking for 11 minutes. No, in the building and out of the building in 11 minutes, it comes out that he talked to the kids for like four and a half minutes. Somebody recorded the speech, which is great on them, put it out. And it was just bullshit coach bullshit. Nothing in there that was sincere. And when he's done talking again, no questions, no hugs, no daps, no see is gone. Get fucked, bro. He gave me a check for $250 million. You know, I have to show uh, my wife would have to okay it and approve it. Now he says 100% my decision. Where's the media asking the question, coach? How do you respond to the people who want to know how you can walk out on a team who's still in a quest for a national title and put their chances at peril by leaving? Where's that one question? Who's got the guts to ask that one question of this two-bit lion piece of garbage. I wonder if he's going to send that up to the tower at LSU to do some video work. 
climb up that scaffold in a windstorm. Remember that? For those folks who don't remember, the kid who died, the poor kid who died in Notre Dame, because he negligently and ridiculously set this kid up in a tower during a windstorm to do some goddamn videotape and practice like it was that important to go that high in a windstorm which blew the scaffold down and the poor kid lost his life? Well, forget about that. I didn't. This guy's a piece of fucking garbage. A piece of garbage. He's a phony. He's an overrated coach. He's a blowhard. I hope he gets fired in two fucking years. I have to go two and ten, three and nine, pay him his money, move on. And Ogeron won a national title. He's gone in two years. Because of transgressions off the field with his players. And issues. Agreed. Problematic. Shouldn't happen. But this guy's just a gutless bum. How did he get in a foxhole with this guy? You turn around, he's going to be gone. What a piece of unadulterated trash. When the stories resurface once more about the accident in Notre Dame, how he left Cincinnati, when the Green Bay Packers now head coach and New York Jets now head coach were his assistants and thought they were going over to his house for a party and they were just Parking going there to shovel cars. his fucking driveway. It's not surprising when you hear back all these stories, but it's still flooring how he handled this departure. These are grown-ass men, man. These aren't boys. And even if they were, have some fucking respect for these guys. None. Like I said, after everything they went through last year, picking up their belongings and moving their ass to the ACC to compete in that conference because they couldn't have a season just trying to get non-conference games. Winning the damn league, basically. Getting to the end against Clemson. These same guys come back for him, and he can't even shake their hands? How do you look those people in the eye? Not just them, your whole coaching staff that you brought with them to leave. He doesn't have the guts to look them in the eye, because he's gutless. This guy can sell ice to the Eskimos. He's as big a fucking phony as ever come down the pike. And as I said, I couldn't give a rat's ass about Notre Dame. I care about kids. I care about their devotion. I care about their effort. I care about them being rewarded for what they've given you. By maybe an ounce of fucking loyalty and respect and dignity. And he does that. You know, good on the coaches, too. Marcus Freeman potentially going to be named the next coach. Tommy Reese, all the guys that he brought over there that have ties to Notre Dame, went to Notre Dame, are Notre Dame, having their own team meeting and telling all the players, we ain't going nowhere. We're going to compete for a fucking national championship. Good for them. That's a quote. Great for them. Good for them. And great for the players for not jumping ship and staying around. And as you said, I'm not, the biggest Notre Dame fan, I couldn't care less how things go for them. But you got to find yourself rooting for them a little bit with this situation. This has nothing to do with a like or a dislike for a team. This has everything to do with simple honesty, integrity, and what's right. Don't give me this bullshit about the signing day and December 15th and everything's going to be in place. You've never won a national title. You've gotten embarrassed every time you've been there. This may be your best team. Certainly the team that's playing the best at this time of year. Well, you've certainly told everybody that your best team now is going to be at LSU. Just throwing those guys under the bus in every fashion that he could. One loss at home against Cincinnati, who probably will be in the tournament, barring an upset this Saturday. Great chance to be in the Final Four. And you head for the Bayou. 
that's when you decide to do it before the final tabulations are in before you even know whether your team will have the opportunity to play for a national title. You don't walk out, you run out on your team. You pathetic piece of garbage. I don't know if you heard what the committee had to say. Gary Barter has to stand up there and field all the questions every week. God bless him. But multiple questions were about Notre Dame to no surprise. And he said that they didn't decide to put Notre Dame behind Oklahoma State because they don't have a head coach because that's written in the rules. You could decide on a team if they don't have a coach or a player that you think would be impactful. They said they didn't do that yet. They were going to wait till after this week. I don't believe that. I don't believe that at all. I get that Oklahoma state's win was huge. Don't get me wrong, but it really felt like this Brian Kelly news came out. They happen to fall down to six I know you're saying that you didn't view that as a reason and you're going to wait and until these games get played this week. It up? Exactly. Why did you even bring it up? Why do you give this, yourself the out? Why do you put that fodder uh, in the press's feedback? Why do you create that possibility? Why do you set that, mind, that, that, that thought in our minds aflame? Why do you even mention it if it didn't even go into your thinking? Makes no sense. And it's abominable anyway. Like, he's so important. Well, why are you punishing the team that actually plays on the field if the guy that happens to be on the sidelines decides to up and leave? It's not their fault. They're the ones playing the fucking games. He's not calling the offensive plays. He's not calling the defensive plays. He's standing over there getting purple in the face yelling at the officials. Why punish them for that? 61 years old, winning his head coach in Notre Dame history this past season. And he thinks he's got one more shot at this, one shining moment. Let's go to LSU and see if we can make it happen for $10 million a year. I don't dislike the decision to do that, but the way in which he went about it was bullshit. There's no other way to put it. And any misgivings and losing seasons that he may have at LSU are more than well-deserved because outside of that state, he's not going to have any fans. You could argue Lincoln Riley was leaving the SEC, which Oklahoma was going to, to the easier path at the Pac-12. He denies that, but who are we to believe? You can understand that decision too. There's all sorts of ways where you could shake your head with these guys and say, of course they would pick that decision. If I were in that boat, Maybe I would too. But the way that it went about and how quickly both of them were just able to uproot their lives. You blink and they're already on a plane. And it's not just them, it's the assistants. Now those poor wives are going to have to figure out how the hell are we going to sell this fucking house? We got two kids and a dog in the school district and now he's just going to hop on a plane and join Lincoln Riley to go to California or fly down to go to LSU with Brian Kelly. What are we going to do with the house? The kids, they don't give a shit. They got a job. They weren't one of the ones that got left behind. Just scumbags all over the place in college football and none more eloquently than this past week. Ruining two incredible top 10 games that we could have been talking about. Three top 10 games heading into the championship weekend, which should be getting all the press. Is Alabama going to find a way to beat Georgia and stay in the top four? Or is Oklahoma State going to beat Baylor and make its way into the final four? Instead, the storylines are about these two bozos for the way they went about their decisions. And bozos. And I think way Lincoln Riley is a terrific coach. He is. I think he's a top five coach. And I have always thought he was a good guy. Uh, I still think he's a good guy. I don't like what he did and how he did it. It's very slimy. But I've never thought. I've never thought the other guy was a good guy. I've always thought the other guy was a phony, a hustler, a two-bit, total and complete jerk with the press, after games, never liked the way he's handled himself, never liked the way he's talked to the media, totally out for himself. That's what I've always thought. And lo and behold, for once, the old report was right.
Well, even the interviews he did after he got hired, Brian Kelly with Dan Patrick, he kind of did a little bit of a car wash. He was still an asshole during the interviews. Dan's trying to ask him he's when he found arrogant. out why he's he did it. He's always been incredibly arrogant. Yeah. Always. And look, I hate to say it. It almost pains me to say it. It's Notre Dame. I know they think they're holier than thou, no pun intended. I know they think they're better than anybody else, everybody else. My son said to me the other day, why don't they join a conference? We know the answer. Greed. All about the money. They don't want to share the huge TV contract. The only program in America has got their own national TV contract with a national network. Not some cable network. Not some conference network. Uh-uh. NBC. All our money. Nobody else's. And we'll play the ACC. Most of them. And our other teams that we've always played. We'll use the ACC if there's a global pandemic and we need them to complete a season. We are, we'll, we'll do whatever we have to do. Yeah, we'll have no sucks. problem joining them for that. No problem. And we'll keep all the money because we're Notre Dame. However, they have been for years far longer than the old report has been around. One of the staples, one of the traditions, the Golden Dome, Touchdown Jesus, Newt Rockney, Frank Leahy, Eric Parsegian, Lou Holtz, and this ass clown. All of the former one national titles. This one ran out on his team before they had the chance. And then had the nerve to say, where I'm at now, we have the chance. How do you know that yet? It doesn't make any sense. Regarding the top four as it stands now, Georgia, Michigan, after that huge victory against Ohio State, Alabama, for whatever reason, is still there at three. Cincinnati made its way in at four and hasn't dropped out quite yet. And Oklahoma State at five, Notre Dame close behind. Are you led to believe or leaning toward chalk in which Georgia takes care of its business against Alabama? Oklahoma State wins the Big 12 championship, which would slide them up into the top four and assume Cincinnati wins theirs being enough to stay in the final four for that to be what makes the college football playoff or will there be chaos again? I don't know if it's going to be chaos, but what I think will happen versus what I hope will happen. Um, I think, and I hope that Georgia will maul Alabama and eliminate any possibility of Alabama going in as a two-loss team with this notion of oh, the same question. What if Alabama plays great and loses on a last-second field goal? Yada, yada, yada. You know, can we put them in from the SEC as a two-loss team? No, 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 no. I think Georgia will beat them by two touchdowns. My only concern is, as always, Kirby Smart. Well, this should be Kirby Smart's year. This is finally his chance. He's got the best team. He's got a defense literally for the ages. A decent offense. Take care of the football. Don't turn it over. Run it. Throw some. And a defense with a bunch of guys who are playing on Sunday. They should pummel Alabama. I don't mean 50 to 10, but they should win this game going away. 31 to 10, 27 to 13, 35 to 20. But it's Kirby Smart. Kirby Smart fake a punt. Fourth and one midfield when everybody knows it's coming in the SEC title. Kirby Smart spit the bit in the championship game against Alabama. Not the SEC championship game. Remember, the national championship game. To two. I trust Kirby Smart as far as I can throw him. But I think Georgia will take care of business. And I also think Michigan 
will take care of business against Iowa. So we have two spots. I am worried about Cincinnati. I could see them losing to Houston. If they manage to hang on and get the Duke, which I hope they will, they're in. I don't trust Oklahoma State. I like their defense. I don't like their quarterback. He threw terrible interceptions. I think Baylor can beat them. I wouldn't be surprised if Baylor does beat them. But if they win, that sets the table. What do we do? Does Oklahoma State go in ahead of Notre Dame? Probably so. But if they stumble, nothing would make me happier than to see the former coach of Notre Dame and the new coach at LSU watching the team he ran out on playing for a national title. In his new digs at Baton Rouge, where, mark it down, he will never, ever play for a national title. They will get sick of his phony Irish bullshit in two to three years. Mark my words. He will never play for a national title at LSU. I could be wrong, but I hope the hell I'm not. I'm obviously pulling now for the Big 12. What could benefit Oklahoma State or what could hurt them is Baylor quarterback Jerry Bohannon hurt his hamstring a couple weeks ago. Is he back? And nobody knows whether or not He's back. We don't yet. know. He's been practicing, but that's different than being of in the course. game. And as someone that uses his legs, yep. they might hold him back in favor of Blake Shapin, who played last week. He's got a gunslinger baseball he played arm. Well. He's got he played swag. Well. And that could be the not having enough film on a quarterback type game that benefits the Bears and could catch Oklahoma State's defense sleeping on a couple plays. And maybe all the magic ran out in Bedlam because they had to play from behind all second half, return a kick for a touchdown to stay in the game. Two huge calls in their favor. Two huge calls. Absolutely huge calls. The non, well, not the non, the late hit personal foul call that was picked up. No idea how. On third and forever in the. Lincoln Riley couldn't believe it. And then the non, and look, nobody hates interference. More than me. Nobody despises, as we've discussed time and time again, with the interference in the end zone, put the ball to the one-yard line. But remember, in college, it doesn't go to the one-yard line. 15 yards. So now to put the ball at the one-yard line. After the quarterback, who's had a miserable game, runs for about 60 yards out of nowhere to get them in striking distance, he's got the kid open in the end zone, and when he... The Okie State defender has got his back to the wall and just mugs him, wraps his arms around him, and prevents him and prevents him from trying to make a move for the ball. And there's no interference call. Yeah, that call is made 99 times out of 100. They don't make the call, and and we don't know if Oklahoma would have put the ball in the end zone, but that was an awful, unacceptable non-call. Those and Big 12 officials officiated that second half like and remember the Titans when they don't get any of the calls right in the playoff game and Coach Yost has to go out and ream the official out and he says, you lost yourself to Hall of Fame, but then they start Cletus, officiating the game. I know what you're doing, Cletus. I'll go to the press. <laughs> I'll go to the papers. That was exactly classic. how they officiated that. Classic. Defense on me. They the knew exactly scene. what they were doing. I don't want them to gain another yard. Just one of the classic short pep talks in the history of sports cinema to his defense. I don't want them to gain another yard. You make them remember when they played the Titans. And what I saw from those officials was ridiculous. That was such a bad 
non-interference call. And, you know, they had two more plays after that. And, uh, you know, one was incomplete and then the sack. And that was all she wrote. And look, Oklahoma wasn't the better team. They didn't deserve to win, but they got screwed out of an an opportunity to win. You know, I I think Oklahoma is the better team, but I I don't think they were the better team Saturday night. I think, you know, it was an even game. Uh, Oklahoma State maybe even outplayed Oklahoma. But the point is, uh, there was a gift. It was a gift. And I am in no way, shape, or form convinced that Oklahoma State is going to beat Baylor. Just when you think you could predict how X, Y, and Z is going to go in college football for these last handful of weeks when the games have really ramped up, there's been something that's gone on in the games that have mattered seemingly every week. So it wouldn't be a big shock to see some more chaos happen this weekend. But as you said, if Oklahoma State is going to lose and unfortunately bow out of their hope to get into the college football playoff, if Alabama somehow beats Georgia, which would put their hope of the college football playoff in jeopardy too, if it's Notre Dame is the team that ends up sliding in there after all that shit Brian Kelly pulled, woo! all they need is somebody to stumble. That's it. Alabama, Michigan, Oklahoma State. Just one of them. Because they're done. And that was all of college football for this past week. Just, you know, two coaches who took all the attention off of what was a great weekend on the field. A Saturday that you couldn't stop watching. My son and I watched college football from noon until midnight. Noon until midnight. Well, 11. What time did Bedlam end? 11, 11.30? Ballpark? It's a great sports day. Great sports day. I put the Christmas lights off until Sunday. Took care of business then. Couldn't do it. Couldn't stop watching Michigan Ohio State. Obviously, you got to watch the Iron Bowl when Alabama's losing. You expect it to be 41 to 10. They're losing the whole game. You can't stop watching. And then Bedlam to follow. Great thing for college football, marred by what happened the next day and day after. Black eye on the sport. Absolutely. And in everything else, you didn't miss anything. Al, it's always a pleasure. We'll do it again next week. Folks, enjoy the final quasi-regular season weekend and conference championship weekend of college football. We will get more into the lockout next week. For my partner, the great John Tiny Lund, I am Al Renato, a.k.a. Al from White Plains. Have a great sports weekend, everybody. We'll be back 8 p.m. Eastern time here on Sports Radio America. You can listen at sportsradioamerica.com and interact with the show there as well or find us on the TuneIn app by searching for Sports Radio America. You can also follow John Lund under the same handle on Twitter at London Bridge. Thanks again for listening.